What's going on, everybody? I'm Jeff St. Pierre, back from a mini hiatus. Thank you so much for sticking with me. I've got a great new episode of the show for you. This is episode 83 of the Adult Education Podcast. Joining me today is author Ryan North. Thanks for hanging out. I appreciate you taking some time out of your day to listen to the show. Adult Education is a fun project for me that I do out of the love of conversation and learning. If you want to support me or the show, the best way to do it is to leave a five-star rating on whatever platform you're listening on. I can see through the metrics of the show that most of you listen via Spotify. That's great. Those five stars are huge. If you are using a platform that allows a review, please share a few words too. That also really helps the podcast algorithm gods. Now, maybe I'm crazy or a little too practical, but I've always found myself wondering if the evil plots from villains and comics and shows would be possible to pull off. Like when I watch Despicable Me with my daughter, sometimes I wonder, could there actually be a shrink ray? All right, maybe that one's a little bit further out there, but so many of the evil plans have roots in reality. And, and with little funding, they could actually be true. That's what best-selling author and comics writer Ryan North has tried to prove with his funny and captivating new book, How to Take Over the World, Practical Schemes and Scientific Solutions for the Aspiring Supervillain. Ryan's been writing comics for years, including work with Marvel and DC Comics. He's been tasked with inventing new and ambitious world domination schemes. But Ryan didn't just want his to be the most extravagant or insane ideas. He wanted them to be based in reality. He wanted them to actually be possible. And that's what this book is really all about. How to Take Over the World takes a deeper look at some of the classic supervillain schemes and says, but what if that could actually work? Ryan uses his background in various aspects of science and speaks with all kinds of experts to show how even you could be a great supervillain. Well, you and like $56 billion. Some of the topics include how to build the perfect secret base, controlling the weather for a perfect crime, time travel, cloning dinosaurs, the search for immortality, and so many more. I loved this conversation with Ryan. He's a very interesting and funny guy, and the book is great. If you're a science or comic nerd, you're definitely going to love this, but I do think it's great for anyone that just likes to think outside the box. Now, before we jump into the conversation, I just want to take a quick second to remind you to rate adult education on whatever platform you're listening on. Five stars would be awesome if you don't mind, and leave a review if you have an opportunity to do so. And don't forget to find us on social media. I'm on Instagram, at Adult Education Podcast. Here I am. Ah, there he is. How's it going? <laughs> it's going fine. Good. I never know with these like promo tours. Like I, I don't, I'm afraid to talk until I'm talked to first. I don't know if you're on with somebody else. I don't want to interrupt. Like, <laughs> oh no, no. I just I had I joined early to be safe, and then when the video's off, it's like me in a fancy suit. It is. And then when it's on, it's like here's what I look like now after pandemic. <laughs> well, you're a very handsome man. Let me go ahead and throw it <laughs> well, out. There. You're not so bad yourself. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I was watching your uh, TED talk from quite a few years ago, and you make a joke at the beginning about your wife. You're telling a story. And you're like, uh, at the time of the story, it was my current girlfriend. Now she's my current wife. And I laugh because I said the same joke once on the air at my radio it's station. A good joke. And the heat that I people got from people. It. No, they don't. They're like, wait, your current <laughs> wife? What do you mean? I'm like, well, no, you just need to kind of roll with it. Yeah, no, I, I've, I've people don't get that joke. Like, that's an extremely hilarious joke. When I got married, my my friends got me a they were cartoonists. They did a comic that said, congratulations, Ryan North on this, the event of your first marriage <laughs> like that's pretty good <laughs> I, I i love the book and i was thinking about it i have to take a flight tomorrow and i was like i should take this book on the flight with me but now i'm worried i'm gonna get flagged if i bring this yeah i mean the book's only out yesterday so you would be the first <laughs> <laughs> yes i have no data i can share with you on whether it gets you flagged or not just yet 
<laughs> well, Ryan, the book is called How to Take Over the World, Practical Schemes and Scientific Solutions for the Aspiring Supervillain. And I think what I appreciate the most about this, uh, and I have not finished the entire thing yet, but what I appreciate is how it's like fiction and nonfiction all mixed together into one. It's very interesting the way you weave this. Yeah, it was something I sort of stumbled across with my last book, which was called How to Invent Everything, A Survival Guide for the Stranded Time Traveler. And the idea there was it's a repair guide for a time machine because you've rented a time machine, it's gone back in time and it's broken. Now you're stuck in the past. So here's how you rebuild civilization. And I realized that like the fictional candy coating of that really motivated the nonfiction. You, you had a reason to learn, a reason to care. And I want to do that again with this book where the idea of, okay, this is a guide for supervillains on taking over the world and you are an aspiring supervillain uh, really motivates all the nonfiction in it and gets, gets that nice blend of like fantasy and reality, which I really enjoyed uh, exploring and, and teasing apart. I, I kind of had, I'm glad you mentioned time travel because I had a bunch of like back to the future moments while I was reading through this. <laughs> and I kept thinking to myself, what if this book somehow ended up on a bookshelf, say 40 or 50 years ago? Like I know a lot of the technology wouldn't have been available back then, but like, what about planting these seeds into people's minds 40 or 50 years ago? <laughs> yeah. I, when I was doing how to invent everything, um, I, I realized that this book I'm making is probably the most dangerous book to put out of time because it has all this information and all this nonfiction that you need to know. And then I was at a bookstore and I saw a book on the shelf that made me realize, no, that's the most dangerous book. And it was called, I still remember the cover and title it was called how Hitler could have won world war two. <laughs> I was like, don't leave that lying around. <laughs> Hide that book. That's a dangerous book. You almost wonder why somebody would write a book like that. I mean, I guess yeah. to move copies, I suppose, but it's just like, that seems like something that we could just let go. Let's just let, leave that one alone. <laughs> I, I do think I'll it because that with a stick. it's kind of interesting to have your book on a bookshelf because, you know, right there on the spine, it just says right there how to take over the world. I, I wonder like, what book am I going to put next to that on my bookshelf? Yeah, that was actually part of the appeal for the book was the title because uh, like, I'll, I'll tell you when I'm writing, I'm always writing for myself and hopefully people like it too. But I have this thing where I'm usually writing comic books and I try to write all ages, which doesn't mean for kids. It means that adults can read it and kids can read it. And the secret to writing all ages books is that everyone keeps their clothes on and nobody swears and you've got an all ages book because <laughs> kids are smart. They don't want to be talked down to. And uh, with this book, I gave an early copy to a friend of mine who has a 10 year old and his 10 year old read it first and devoured it. And I was like, oh yes, of course, because and I'm 10 years old. If I see a book called How to Take Over the World, I'm absolutely reading that book. And like, as an adult, I'm curious about the actual science and technology we explore in the text. But as a kid, you're like, here are nine world domination plots. And all I need is $56 billion to pull all of them off. I've got a goal now. I'm good to go. That's it. I mean, just call up Elon Musk and get a loan and you're fine. You're in business. <laughs> um, was there, was there another, another book or another piece of work that inspired you to to take this dive and maybe even with your previous work too, to, to take a look at practical applications for something that we would think is completely absurd. Yeah. Uh, I really enjoyed the idea of taking a wild premise completely seriously and following through on everything that implies. And it sort of came from my work doing writing supervillains for Marvel and DC where your job is to come up with a plot for the villain to have. And the best villains always believe that they're the heroes and to have this plot be foiled at the last second. And the thought of, there are two thoughts. First of, what if the villain didn't have to lose? But the second thought was, well, 
here in the real world where we don't have mind control rays and we don't have shrinking particles, how much of this is credible? How close can we get to like cloning dinosaurs to make an entrance on or to have a secret base floating above Antarctica or to dig to the Earth's core to hold it hostage using only actual science and technology? And then this is a great lens to view like what, what's going on. There's a later chapter where we talk about immortality, which is a classic supervillain team. I'm going to live forever. But there are tech bros in California actively pursuing that because they don't want to die. <laughs> so it's, it, was, it was surprising how astonishingly credible a lot of these schemes were. I, th- I think that's what surprised me in a lot of ways, too, because you read them in comics or you see them in movies and you think, well, that's just absurd. But at the same time... Yeah. There is so much out there now that, you know, the average person doesn't know is being worked on. Like I, I've read and seen interviews with some of these tech bros or, or the guy that created uh, Bulletproof Coffee, the guy that I can't think of his name right now. He is famously trying to become the oldest person ever. Like he wants to live mm-hmm. as long as he can possibly live. And he's doing everything like through all these different genetic tests and everything to try to live to be like 150 or 200 years old. And it's fascinating that people are actually making waves in this process right now. One of the most attractive ideas about immortality is that like everyone gets it, right? Of course it would be good if I didn't die and I could do so much better in the world of life. I could live more, more than the 80 years that we can reasonably expect if we're lucky. And part of the fun of researching that from the supervillain point of view is that Yes, that's true. But when you look at the societal thing, like the whole thing falls apart because any sort of immortality is going to be a uh, medical intervention, a required technology. If you're uploading your mind to a computer, you need to have the technology to do that. If you're extending your telomere so you your cells can live for a lot longer, um, that's a medical intervention. And both of these require money to do and for upkeep, which means that at a societal point of view, you could end up producing this like cartoonish dystopia where rich people live forever and poor people die. And that's so like inarguably bad for civilization as a whole that it made a, a nice trick in the book for, for enlightened supervillainy. Where if you are as a supervillain are trying to become immortal, then you can research this stuff and do the same things that everyone else is doing, but you keep it a secret that you've actually made it work so that you're the only one who's immortal. You hide all these civilization-ending catastrophes from everyone else because they don't know what's possible, and you alone benefit from this hugely elongated life. And it's this, this nice sort of twist where you're helping the world by helping only yourself, which feels like the peak of what a supervillain is, is usually trying to do. <laughs> Like, I'm the good guy, but me first. <laughs> Every time you've said that a couple of different times, and it's funny because I always picture my immediate uh, thing is I picture like Thanos and how convinced yeah. he was that he was doing the right thing. He never broke. He was convinced yeah. from the very start that he was doing the right thing. Well, the, you look at Thanos, like here's a guy who's trying to kill and succeeded in killing half of all life in the universe. Clearly bad. But his motivation was not, I want to kill half of all life. His motivation was, I want a sustainable world for future generations. And I think most of us would agree that we want something sustainable. We want to leave a good planet for our children. We want a sustainable world for future generations. Where Thanos aired, and I'll go on record saying this, is when he tried to kill half the universe. <laughs> so like, the, the motivation is relatable. It's just the implementation is where most villains fall apart. They try to go too direct or in a way that, that ignores the, the costs of what they're doing. 
is it weird that I feel comfort in knowing that there are people like yourself behind a lot of these stories that we've read and we've seen over the years that actually takes serious consideration into what these you know villains are doing. It's not just like, what's the craziest crap we could have these villains do and throw it out there. You're actually <laughs> thinking about what it is to see if it's even humanly plausible. Yeah. I think, I think the best villains are relatable. And when you're writing, you want to write, you want to write a good story end of the day. And the best stories are ones in which the villain gets really close to winning and you look at him and say, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe that person should win. And then the heroes come up with some, some clever scheme at the last second to, to foil them. And what I realized as a, as a writer is that we comic book writers are coming up with these increasingly credible world domination schemes and then foiling, foiling them ourselves by putting these pins in our own grenades so the heroes can win. So the fun of this book was, was saying, okay, so let's not do that. Let's have the hero, the villains go all the way. And what would they need? How far would that go? What would the world look like? What could we accomplish? Because I, I, I really like the idea of super villains being someone who works outside of existing power structures to accomplish things that aren't being done otherwise. And that's also what superheroes do, right? Like Batman isn't a police officer. He does. He's a vigilante. He works outside power structures to make the world a better place. And those two extremes having the same motivation, I think, is really fun. That is an interesting way to look at it. And I never really thought too much about the vigilante aspect of it, you know, growing up. Because when you're a kid and you're younger, you just think it's exciting. Like, Batman. Batman's weird. awesome, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But then as you get older, you're like, oh, he's kind of a bad guy in a way. Like, he's a guy doing uh, questionable things for the right reasons against people that are doing questionable things for the wrong reasons. So it's kind of like, it's an interesting thing to look at from a philosophical standpoint. Yeah, I love Iron Man for that because Tony Stark is this charismatic jerk who's doing things for the right reasons now, but he spent right. the first part of his life manufacturing weapons to whoever would pay the most. So there's there's that complexity there and that that blurry space between hero and villain, I think is Tony spent some time there, Iron Man spent some time there. Uh it's 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 juicy stuff as a writer, but I would prefer to live, and this may be the Canadian in me talking, but I would prefer to live in a world with a stable, good government than one in which a billionaire in a metal suit solves all their problems. Because <laughs> I don't trust them. I don't, I don't want to rely on that. <laughs> you know, I, I was just telling somebody on, on my uh, my morning show that I host out here in America, and they were doing a story about go, billionaires going into space, and I was like, there is probably nothing in this world that I care less about than billionaires spending their money to go into space. I'm like, I don't know why. It's not this even is a really major space. Story. I know. And it's not even, it's the edge of space. Oh, <laughs> it's, it's such a, it's such a cop out. I know it is. It is. Um, so Ryan, I have to say, cause if I ever had a thought, uh, to question some of these things like you like you did in the book and you, you know to dive deep and to figure out if they were actually possible i wouldn't even know where to begin to start researching so tell me a little bit about your background and how this is stuff that you could even comprehend yeah uh, it basically comes from me doing my web comic which is called dinosaur comics i'm doing it for almost 20 years and every day it's i need so the premise of the comics is the same pictures all the time with different words so i'm always remixing the same image which constrains you it's a limit it's a restriction but every day the main character t-rex needs something new to talk about so as part of that i've become sort of this voracious reader of weird stuff so i have something for my characters to talk about so writing this book sort of pays off on those 20 years of of thinking weird thoughts and writing them down um but the fun part about researching it is yes it, it takes years and yes um 
libraries and librarians are great because librarians are there to help you when they don't ask questions. But researching stuff online is trickier because the internet is not a librarian. And I reached a point where I'd want to look up like locations of nuclear reactors in America. <laughs> and I felt like this would get me on a list. So the first thing I'd search would be, dear FBI agent, this is for a book. Sincerely, Ryan, this is my alibi. And then I'd search for where the nuclear reactors are. And that I think, I mean, I haven't been arrested yet. So hopefully that works. <laughs> <laughs> Fingers crossed. Yeah. <laughs> like you said, the Super book villains just came need out. to establish an alibi. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I mean, did you like I, I'm I'm reading this almost picturing like a series that you would see on TV, too, where Ryan goes to this, you know, lab somewhere and gets to watch scientists try to build something. Did you reach out to people? Did you re reach out to like scientists or, or doctors or whatever to talk to them about the, this process? I did. And uh, one of the ones that was uh, no pun intended, a moonshot was uh, reaching out to the team that did the Voyager 2 record for sending information into deep space. Sure. And um, I got to talk to John Lumberg, who was the project manager on that. Mm -hmm. And the work this guy did on Voyager's golden record is absolutely going to outlive all of us. It is probably going to outlive the planet. It's incredible. It could last 5 billion years into the future. And so talking to this man who was very generous with his time, um, felt really special <laughs> like I like I should like I was getting away with something and it really helped inform uh, the final chapter in the book we're trying to send information into into deeper and deeper areas of space and time so that the world will never forget your name as a supervillain. <laughs> <laughs> what was something when doing the research that you were surprised by how close we actually were like we were already discussing a little bit about uh you know living forever but mm -hmm. is there, was there something else in there that you were like wow we're a lot closer than I thought we were on this one. Yeah, it actually it didn't make it into the book in the end. I wanted to research the classic supervillain scheme of throwing your enemies into the sun. Oh, okay. And uh, it turns out it's it's too easy. Uh, NASA's basically already done it with the Parker Solar Probe, which has a orbit that goes uses planets to slow it down and gets closer and closer to the sun each time it loops through. It wouldn't take much to modify that to send something into the sun. And so... Unlike most of the other chapters, um, this was actually a relatively simple problem. It only takes $500 million in five years to get there, but it didn't, it didn't point to anything uh, deeper and more interesting that we can explore along the way. It just became like, this is, I'm surprised it's this easy to send your enemies into the sun. And I wish it wasn't because I want to talk about it more, but it just felt like it would be a two-page chapter. <laughs> Here's how you do it. Done. Next. I hope that wasn't going to be your lead-off <laughs> chapter. <laughs> <laughs> If you don't like this book, skip this chapter because I don't want to end up in the sun. <laughs> there was a book I was just reading that was about music and it was this the idea of quote unquote selling out. So a lot of artists that were in the underground music scene that then you know mm -hmm. sold out to go on to major labels. And I, the, the author had said something about cutting a few artists because at the end he was like, well, the story just doesn't matriculate the way that I was hoping. I did all these interviews, I did all this research and found out, yeah, it was just a basic story of a band signing a record deal. There was no real anything. Yeah, that's the the joy and the the horror of research is you don't know where it's going to take you. And uh, the the benefit of that was uh, the first two chapters of the book are building a secret base and starting your own country. And those were originally going to be one chapter, but there's so much interesting stuff about people trying to like dig these these self sustaining communities and people trying to uh, start countries all over the world just by declaring that they're they're kings and all this interesting political and and leadership and human nature stuff that you get into when you start thinking about 
those sorts of issues that it, it basically demanded to be two completely separate chapters. It's wild that in this day, we do see people that think they can just walk into a place and go, I am the king of this land. Like, here's my flag. <laughs> yeah. And like, that's one of the things I wanted to, to get across in the book is that this doesn't work and it's not even a good idea. <laughs> like the, the thing I always go back to is like regular boring pedestrian, real crime is robbing a bank Yeah, and exciting, charismatic, supervillain crime is stealing a bank. <laughs> you got to take it to the next level. <laughs> and so I wanted to, to explore those sorts of things that we don't see in the real world. And we get to, to have fun with these uh, thought experiments of, of what you can do if you try to do this sort of stuff seriously and not get into like the nitty gritty of, you know, real life hostage taking, which is horribly traumatic and all the, the bad things happening in the world today. Like I don't want to have the reader be bogged down in that. I want them to be on the level of ideas and, and, and con concepts. There is a disclaimer you put at the beginning of the book, and I like at the very end, you say, <laughs> normally here I'd add a don't try this at home, but just to be safe, don't try this anywhere. Was there something in your research and in the book that you were like, no, but seriously, don't try this anywhere? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, the chapter on controlling the weather, which segues into a talk of geoengineering. And the idea there is that uh, climate change is causing the world to get, on average, warmer. And if we could reduce the amount of sun hitting the planet, then we could solve part of that problem. And one way to do it is to, in the stratosphere, spray out sulfur dioxide, which uh, sulfur dioxide, which will uh, make a white haze, which reflects about 2% of the sunlight, which is enough to bring Earth back to pre-industrial levels. And I'm sure there's people hearing that saying, great, climate change is solved. <laughs> Terrific. But the, the problem there is, A, it doesn't solve all the issues, just solves the heat thing. But B, you've now got a human hand on the global thermostat. And so if a tornado happens somewhere, it's no longer a random act of God. It is, I can blame the person who altered the world's weather, which is like a recipe for global conflict, 100%. And the, the challenge with, with geoengineering is that people have worked it out. They've priced it out. And for $7 billion startup costs for modifying planes to reach the stratosphere and about $3 billion ongoing, you can do this. And that's within the range of like one crazy billionaire deciding I'm going to be a hero and save the world this way. So I wanted to make it clear in that chapter that like, even if you are reading this with $10 billion, um, there are some downsides that I've gone over in great detail. <laughs> Please consider them. And I've, I've had a friend when I first announced the book being like, Ryan, this is a really dangerous book. You can't do this. And I was like, look, I am a comic book writer. And if I can see these plots and I can come up with this, Surely those with the means to implement them can also do that. And I don't think the answer is to like hide our heads in the sand and say, hopefully no one does it. It's to like have a public discussion and be like, this is, let's all agree this is bad so that no one will do it. That's a good point that you bring up because I had that thought too while reading it. And I love this idea that I mentioned before about you taking things that, you know, to the layman may look absurd or like a normal comic book plot, but now you're making them real and you're taking a look at what they look like in the real world. I got a book many years ago. It was called, I think it was called the science of Harry Potter. And it looked at mm -hmm. a lot of the things that went on in the Harry Potter series. And, and could some of those things be real? Now we're talking about witches and magicians and whatever. So there is a certain element of that where you're just like, okay, this is crazy. But I was wondering with this, you are literally laying the groundwork for a lot of things here. So <laughs> is there, was there ever a point where you're like, ah, I really, maybe I shouldn't do this anymore? <laughs> I don't, I think 
there's never a point where I was like, oh, I shouldn't do this. Then I, I probably wouldn't have done it. Um, I think the the closest one was I was working on the chapter on, it's about the internet and uh, ways you could try to disable it and how that probably wouldn't work. And that segues into a discussion of election security. And I was working on that around January 5th, yeah, <laughs> January sure. 6th that time. And uh, what at the time was this sort of more goofy thought experiment of imagine if people didn't trust the machines they were voting on became very real. And so that ended up adding a footnote in the book being like, okay, so in the uh, 2020 election, the machines that Trump had these conspiracy theories for are actually properly built and don't have the exploits that we're discussing here. So this is not, don't read this book and think the election was robbed. Read this book and think, wow, there are countries that have really bad election security and think it's fine because people trust computers and you should never trust a computer on something that you can't fix after the fact. <laughs> How long were you working on this book? Uh, three, four years. Part of the first part, of, for me, part of writing a book is first thinking about it because when you're embarking on a project that's going to be, you know, three, four years long, you don't want to commit something you're going to hate. <laughs> so sure. I, it's like getting a tattoo. You're supposed to think about it for five years before you get it. And if you still like that idea, do it. So I thought about it for a while and then um, got more and more excited about it. And that, that excitement of, you know, I can't believe I get to write this. I can't believe I get to spend my days researching how to bring back dinosaurs in the real world. And then writing that down is something that I can, that I can do. That's the, the joy of it for me. That's something that's interesting to me too, because you, you basically spent three, four years of your life working on one project while also working on other projects. I mean, this, this yes. was, it, it's a job for you and there's an end goal to become something that can be financially viable to you. And I don't know if you had like a signing bonus or something when you pitched this idea, but overall that's three or four years of your life that you're working on something, waiting to get to the point where there may be some sort of financial benefit for you. <laughs> and, and that to me is such a, a difficult thing to wrap my head around. Cause often I've thought about would I work on a book or would I work on something like that? And I'm like, I don't know if I have the time or the ability to dedicate that while also having a real job or, you know, not a, you know what I mean? Like another yeah. job to pay the bills and take care of my family, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the benefits of the way I've been doing it is that I do have these, these monthly comic books I'm writing. And so it's sort of adjacent to the, the nonfiction work I'm doing, but it's also, it's a monthly deadline. It's a monthly paycheck. It's something that is closer to a real job so that this, this wacky, uh, nonfiction book about taking over the world or this nonfiction book about inventing everything from a time machine um, has that space to, to, to grow and to be written while also like keeping me keeping, what's the old expression? Keeping body and soul together. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. Keeping me off the streets. <laughs> Was there a point while you were doing the research for this while also working on other comics where you submitted something and they were like, hey, yeah, this is a little bit too close to reality for us. We're going to need to spice <laughs> this up a little bit. <laughs> no, thankfully not. Um, there hasn't been that problem, which is good. Uh, but I, I love like I've worked a lot. I've worked, spent five years doing a squirrel girl for Marvel. And she's a character who is a very smart young woman and often solves her problems, not with her fist, but with her brains. And so that type of, of lateral thinking of how can I use the pieces I have to construct a solution that leaves everyone happy without having to just like punch someone until they stop doing crime, uh, really tied into the book. Well, <laughs> they're both, they're both the same sort of thought process of 
how do I take what I have to make this this seemingly impossible thing happen? So they were complimentary in a nice way. Well, it must feel good after all these years of working on this to not only have the book out and be able to talk about it with people, but also to have some buzz because I've been seeing a lot of people talking about this book. And, and it, so oh, that's it's kinda, great. Like I just saw today when I was doing some research on you that Esquire listed it as one of its 18 best books of the year so far, which look, that there's yes. a lot of books that come out every week to be in that top 18 so far after four <laughs> months is pretty impressive. Yeah. And I mean, Esquire is, to me, it feels like this is a magazine for classy people. So I'm pleased to be See? the the one of the good books for classy people. <laughs> Pandemic hairstyle be damned. I am in the classy yeah. magazine. I feel like <laughs> like classy people probably don't use the phrase classy people. I don't know. It's like when you go to a restaurant, you're like, this is a fancy restaurant. I'm sure classy people, whatever they call themselves, don't call them fancy restaurants. They probably just call them restaurants. But to me, it's not fast food. So it's a fancy restaurant. <laughs> Well, I'm psyched no for No elbows on the table. I feel like this book should be uh, like basic reading for science courses in high school. Like there's so much interesting information here. You, you take out the ideas that, you know, a lot of these thoughts came from supervillains through history. And you just look at the actual science that you have gone through and you've put together. There's so much fascinating information here that really anybody can learn so much about what's going on out there. Yeah, thank you. I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the, the joy of it for me is that there's all this really cool science and information and technology. And I feel like so often when we're learning about stuff like that, it feels like homework. Like it's like we're taking our vitamins, we're eating our vegetables. It's something we're supposed to be doing. And I feel like the reality is this is really cool stuff and it's really interesting stuff. And if we have a fun lens to view it through where it becomes something we want to do for fun, it's fascinating and interesting that turns it from from homework into fun and anytime when i'm learning and it's fun i'm like this is great i feel like i found a cheat code for life <laughs> i'm having as much fun as playing a video game but i'm not i don't that sense like i'm i feel like i'm wasting some time i should be working when i'm playing a video game so it's nice spoken like a true comic writer i found a cheat code for <laughs> life there <laughs> i love it right exactly. this is a really fantastic work I, I can't wait to to dive in here and finish it because what i've gotten through so far is just it's totally piqued my interest so the book is called how to take over the world i moved it to my left so i have to get it to read the rest of it practical schemes and scientific solutions for the aspiring supervillain ryan where can people go if they want to follow along along with your adventures or find out more about you? Yeah, uh, you can find me at ryannorth.ca. That's sort of all my stuff is there. And this book in particular, we have a website that is supervillainbook.com <laughs> for all your supervillain book needs. I suppose that's better than how to take over the world.com. <laughs> that will definitely <laughs> it, it, get you flagged. <laughs> exactly. This is a non-suspicious URL for your history. Don't worry about it. You'll be fine. Well, I, I will take this on the plane with me and I'll see what happens and I'll report back to you, maybe, as long as I'm not taken to a black site. You know? Yeah, I'll watch the news to see if you... <laughs> <laughs> Ryan, it's been a pleasure, man. Seriously, thank you so much for your time. This is great stuff. This was great. Really appreciate you having me. Thanks right. so much. Big thank you to Ryan North for his time. This conversation was just a ton of fun. Uh, the book is called How to Take Over the World, Practical Schemes and Scientific Solutions for the Aspiring Supervillain. It's available wherever you get your books. Thank you for listening this week. I appreciate you sharing some of your day with me. Until next time, be well.